It's been a couple of weeks, so I, I want to do just a quick review of Jonah 1 and, and highlight a few of the points that I've made that will just lead us into, um, into this, uh, in, really into Jonah 2 today is the plan. Um, so, so the storyline, I think, is pretty familiar, and, and again, we did go over it in terms of Jonah running away from the Lord. Uh, we, we saw a couple of interesting things about how Jonah, um, in a sense, that if he was just reading providence, if he was just reading circumstances, he might think that running away from the Lord was kind of working out for him. He finds this boat that's going to the exact place he wanted to go, which was at the far edge of the world. And so, um, but, but the word of the Lord has been very clear to Jonah, and so, and he's disobeying it. And, and that's, that's, the, that's the, the message in, in verses 1 through 3. Now, the way the, the chapter is set up, we, we put, I'm not going to do it again, but uh, we put two columns up on the board, one that represented what Jonah does and says, and the other that represented what the sailors did and say, and, and that's, that's pretty instructive because it really is, Jonah 1 is really set up to show this um, tension, or this uh, difference, uh, this divide really between how Jonah the prophet, who you would think would be equipped to understand who God is and obey what God, uh, what God says, um, and we talked about the background of pro- prophecy in the Old Testament, but actually what Jonah does is, He's, he's, uh, he's handling things all the wrong ways. And the sailors, oddly enough, even though they're told virtually nothing about the Lord by Jonah, just a few things here and there when he says, I'm running away from the Lord, um, they, they, they respond in an amazing way. They basically, initially, they're, they're crying out to their own pagan gods. But when they learn about the Lord through Jonah just telling them that that's who he's running away from, they, they understand and they recognize he's the God of heaven and earth and therefore we need to pray to him and, and they do and they offer sacrifices to him and, and they fear him. And at the end, in verse 16, it says, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And it's all very specific. It's not just a general, they made vows to God, which could be you know their God or the real God. It's, it's Yahweh that they're, they're making vows to. It's Yahweh that they're coming to. So, so the, the, the real um, action, in a sense, in Jonah 1 has to do with the fact that Jonah is going the wrong direction, even though he should have known better. And these uh, Gentile, pagan initially, uh, sailors who were sort of known for, for, uh, for their, their sin... They're actually responding to the very slightest mention of the Lord. Jonah's a terrible missionary, and he does a terrible job, but yet the Lord uses just, just the fact that he, he tells them he's running away. Uh, the Lord uses it. So that's the, that's the juxtaposition, and that's the, that's the storyline. Now, in 17, really a lot of people have said this, and, and it's probably true that chapter 2 of, of Jonah, I mean, the chapter divisions, as you know, come late, so they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're valuable, but they're not inspired. Um, really, 117 seems to almost go better with chapter 2, because it starts this new section. So now, so if in chapter 1, we were talking about Jonah versus the sailors, and how they're responding... In chapter 2, the sailors are out of the picture. They, it's ended well with them, actually. The last thing we see of these sailors is, 
worshiping the Lord, offering sacrifices, praying to the Lord. They're putting aside their false gods. Like they, They've converted it by the end of chapter 1. Um, so now the focus shifts in chapter 2 to Jonah's prayer. Now, there are two major prayers in the book of Jonah. In fact, the book is kind of structured around two prayers. Um, chapter 1 tells us the account of Jonah and the sailors. Then we have a prayer. Then chapter 3 tells us the account of um, Jonah and the Ninevites. And that's an interesting, it's, we're going to have to do the same thing. Draw two columns on the, on the board and kind of keep track of who does what. And then chapter 4 is a prayer again. So it goes, you know, contrast between Jonah and the, and the Gentiles, prayer. Contrast between Jonah and the Gentiles, prayer. That's really how the whole thing is set up. Now, so this is our, this is our major prayer in the center of the book. Now, there are a couple things to note about this. Well, there are actually a lot of things. I'm going to spend the whole time looking at noting things about this prayer. But, um, but I want to I want to set it up by saying this in verse 17. Notice this. Um, at a really obvious level, obvious. Uh, you know this. It's the Lord who's doing all this. It says Yahweh. So the last thing we read of Yahweh is they're making vows and sacrificing to it. And then Yahweh we pick up with again in verse 17. Appointed a great fish. To swallow Jonah. And, and this is interesting the way that the story progresses. Uh, because in the second sentence of verse 17, it, it tells us the outcome of the whole thing. And, and you'll see that um, it, in a sense it, it does what verse 10 does in chapter 2. So chapter 2, 10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up out on the dry land. And in one seventeen, we already know that, um, in a sense, that's, that, that outcome is not in doubt going into chapter 2. So, there's no real mystery from the reader's perspective. Now, Jonah's different. Jonah is in the belly of the fish, and so he doesn't, you know, we don't necessarily know what he expected. Uh, probably he thought he was dying, but, but, um, but we know as readers. Like, that, that action, and so it's kind of interesting because... When you, when you think of the story of Jonah and the and the great fish, or when you when we tell the story to uh, children because it's an exciting story, actually what we focus on is the part that I mean it's important. I'm not I'm not saying it's not important, but the the Bible actually gives very little detail to Jonah being in the belly of the fish. He was uh, again. I'm not I'm not. Pulling back from that, he was, but it doesn't like detail out this moment by moment tension in Jonah's mind or or you know there anything like that. Chapter one does. Chapter one we get a pretty significant series of details about Jonah and the sailors. And it's actually quite a lot. You know, you know, in, in the Bible, in biblical narrative, it's extremely compact. I, I think I've probably made this point before here in this class, but if you think about one of the, one of the features of narrative in the Bible is how 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 compactly the writers can make these you know amazing points. Think about the example that always comes to my mind with this is think about uh, the story of Abraham offering Isaac on the altar, and, and and there's so much poignancy to that, so much tension, so much drama, so much theological significance. 
you know, all, all, so much packed into that. Whole books have been written just meditating on that. But if you look in your Bible, it's like it's just like a couple paragraphs. It's pretty short, and there are some key moments of dialogue, like when it, when Isaac says, "I see the." You know, I see the wood and I see the implements for sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice? And that's a moment of tension. And and obviously there's this moment where Abraham actually has the knife and the Lord stops him. But the point is, all this to say, you would be surprised if you went through um, the big stories of the Bible that are familiar and kind of live in your head and they should live in your head. And you actually went through and said, how much space do they actually take up? And it's really short because the biblical writers are masters of compact, terse narrative. So what that means is, the takeaway from that is that whenever they do give space to something, um, it's really it's, we really need to pay attention to every detail. But again, the terseness is so, is so evident. Look at, I mean, if you want to talk about the narrative portion of the text that talks about Jonah being in the fish, the narrative of it, are its two verses. It, it's, it's the second, it's, it's verse 17, it's 117, and it's 210, sort of. It's really just 117. Honestly, the whole narrative of Jonah, uh, the story of Jonah and the fish is one verse, really, in the Bible. So, so again, all I'm trying to say is I'm trying to, I guess, say, number one, it's pretty amazing how the biblical writers operate. But it's also, I'm actually then saying we need to pay special attention to the other parts of the text where there is a little more of a drawn-out, developed narrative. We get some detail. We get some back and forth, like chapter one. So, so Jonah and the sailors has, you know, you could say 16 times more uh, space given to it than Jonah and the and, and the and the fish in terms of the narrative. All right, so that that's so now the fact that um, that we are already told what happens in one seventeen. One seventeen says he's in there three days and three nights. Okay, we know that now. Um, the fact that we're already told that actually then makes us focus in on perhaps a few different things in the prayer. Because when we're coming into the prayer, we're not we're not supposed to be asking a question like, um, "Does this work? Does God listen? Um, does Jonah get out of this?" I mean, again, it's hard because we're we know the story, so we might not ask those questions anyway. But imagine you're reading this and and, and you don't know the story. You already know what's going to happen. You already know that Jonah's there three days and three nights, and then he's out somehow. Um, so the prayer again then takes on a little bit of a different cast. It's not it's not a prayer where we're kind of playing a guessing game. You know, it's it's a it's a prayer where we already know how the Lord's responded. We already know the the outcome of it. We already know where Jonah ends up at the end. Now, that's all I, I'm saying. All of that. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, okay. So I'm saying all of that to preface it. Because we know all those things, but Jonah, of course, in the context of the story, does not know those things. He does not know three days and three nights. He does not know that the fish is going to vomit him up onto dry land. Um, He's just there being swallowed up. But having said that, look at the way he frames his prayer 
We'll just look at verse 2. Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God from the belly of the fish, saying, and look at the tenses here. I called out to the Lord, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, that's very different from the prayer you might expect Jonah to pray, or the prayer that you would pray if you were in this situation. If you were in this situation, the prayer that you would pray, the prayer that we would naturally be drawn to, and what we would expect Jonah to pray is, Lord, I'm in this, save me out of it. Preserve me somehow in this. But, but notice, Jonah actually doesn't, this is I think one of the key mysteries, not, I don't think it is a mystery, but initial mysteries of the prayer, is why does Jonah pray as if it's a done deal already? That he's already rescued. I did cry out to the Lord. I did call out to the Lord in my distress. And he answered me from the depths of Sheol. So Jonah prays as if as if it's already happened. As if this whole thing is just, you know, you know, it's 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 already he's already been rescued. So so why I'm I'm asking for some opinion here. Why is it that Jonah, you, do you think, why is it that Jonah prays that way? How is it that he prays that way, given the way the whole story has gone thus far? Do you understand what I'm asking? Right? You understand like how you would, what you would say, Lord, please do this. Like it's still an open question. Um, Please, this is what I, I'm asking for. And, and actually, it's really interesting because the, the language of verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord. Um, I, don't, I don't know that this is strictly speaking true, but um, in, well, no, I think this is actually strictly speaking true. Sorry, what I'm about to say. In other places where you see this word appear, this Hebrew word appear, it's asking for something just like we think prayer is. It's asking for something that hasn't yet happened. And so, again, there's... But that's not how Jonah deals with it. That's my that's my question. Why do you think that is? Yeah. I mean, is it possible that when he says, this is what he prayed, speaking very loosely and really, okay, here's the spirit of the prayer that he prayed from the belly, as captured in his afterwards reflection. Like, is that possible? It's possible. And there are commentaries that say, actually, verse verses... 2 through 9 um, should come after verse 10. And so, so you'll have critical, critical scholars of Jonah who will say it's kind of out of order. It was supposed to be one from move from 117 to 210 and then to 1 to 9. Where, because, for, for exactly this reason. Because it, it, he, he acts like it's a done deal. Now, I don't actually think that's the case. I mean, what you're saying may be true. It is obviously uh, a later reflection that Jonah makes. But, but I don't think, I mean, there's no textual evidence that this is out of order. Uh, and so, so, while certainly Jonah is reflecting retrospectively, um, but you know, even, I'll also push back even at that. Like, if you were reflecting back retrospectively on something like this, you would say, I prayed that the Lord would do this, wouldn't you? 
So I'm not I'm not even sure that the psychology of that would would work that way. If you if you talked about an answered prayer, it would be Lord, you know, we need uh, please. Please heal me of this sickness. Please heal my child. And then he did. You know, not you healed him, retrospectively um, uh, written down. I don't know. I don't know. But that, but, but, but look, that's, that's the most, but that is the most common explanation that you get in the commentaries. What you just said. And usually it's got a kind of critical cast to it, which is not the perspective you're approaching it from, but, but still. What, what uh, uh, other thoughts? Why does Jonah pray this way? Seems to me that you can go two directions. Okay. One of them more critical of Jonah than the other, sure. more, less charitable. Okay. So the more charitable understanding is, in a sense, he's so certain maybe that the Lord will will do this because he trusts the Lord now at this point that. He's just convinced the Lord is going to rescue him. Right. The less charitable is he's convinced, but he's he's almost presuming. Like, right. 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 Yeah. Like, yeah. Sure, he's going to do this because of who I am. I'm a prophet. Right. Right. Yeah. And actually, both of those ways of looking at it, and there's just slight shades in between. Both of those ways of looking at it are also ones that you'll find. So one of the commentators that I lean on the most heavily in Jonah and found the most helpful is a 19th century commentator named Hugh Martin. And he puts it more the charitable way that you, you said, which is, he said, this is, this is, we need to learn about prayer from this. This is faith. And how does he put it? He put, he says, there's, there's sense and faith. There's what you see and, 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 and what you believe. And, and this is a good example of Jonah allowing his faith, um, to, to overcome what he sees. Lord, this is this is what you're gonna do, and it's not presumptuous. He just he just knows it to be true because you you know you could you could make a lot out of uh, the the way it's described in verse one. This is the Lord, His God, and and so Yahweh is still His God, and so He goes into the fish, and He just it looks bleak, but um, nonetheless, it's a done deal. I'm getting out of this. If he did have that kind of, let's talk about the presumption thing. If Jonah does have that kind of confidence, and it seems he does, where, why would he have that kind of confidence? In other words, what is it that would make him say, this is a done deal? Is there anything, do you, can you, can you, I mean, again, we're, we're sort of just taking shots now. It, is there anything that would... Where would Jonah get this kind of confidence that this is this is going to happen? I was just thinking, I mean, he's in the fish for three days. It's mm-hmm. not like there was one prayer. No, that's he's true. At the beginning of the three days, been praying, like you would say, like, please heal me. And then this is just before the fish. That could be. And God has given him confidence that you. I've heard you. You've been pleading, and now I'm going to heal you. So that's good. So there's a couple couple really important observations there. One is that we don't know when during the three days Jonah prayed this. It may have been right at the end. And so maybe Jonah gets through first two days and realizes, you know what? This Lord's going to rescue me. He's doing something here. Or maybe the Lord even somehow revealed that to him, that there's a little bit of silence there, that, uh, but there was an event that took place or a word that took place that we are not given. 
that and that's that is true. That could be, and, and it is interesting because um, it does. It's not super clear in terms of the timing, but it seems like the way it's written. It seems like after verse nine you get verse ten. Like it's it's sort of as soon as Jonah prays this again. It doesn't say as soon as, but or immediately, but. It, 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 there's nothing in between the end of its prayer and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited out Jonah upon dry ground. So, so all that could be in play that this is right at the end and maybe not only is it right at the end, but there's kind of more um, that we don't know that kind of that brings Jonah to this point. Um, yeah? She's got the answer. Oh, good! And maybe Well, that's a great point. So, so you think about this from Jonah's perspective. We, we think of Jonah being in the fish and terrified, and I'm sure he was. But, but it is interesting, the, the, the language of the prayer, that's a great point. The language of the prayer is more like Jonah's sinking down and he gets rescued. Um, and so then the fish becomes less the, the vehicle for, um, for judgment, although, although it has that element to it, because he's in there three days and three nights, but that actually this is the, the step one. Like, once I got swallowed by the fish, I knew I was going to be okay. Because if the Lord brought the fish to swallow me, then clearly he has a plan for me beyond just drowning in the bottom of the ocean. And so that's a great point. That 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 it, there's nothing in the prayer that directly identifies the fish with the salvation, um, or sorry, the fish with death. It, it, it could be that the sea is death, and then the fish is like part one of the salvation. And so when he's into that, it, it's it's going to happen. And that, that's, that's interesting, too, because we'll come back to that, because there is, as you know, um, Jesus uses this as the sign that was in the Old Testament that is paralleled by the sign of his own death and resurrection. And, and, and just to kind of pull the string a little bit more, Jesus um, does go down into the grave. He is, you know, three days and three nights. But he, um, but it's finished as soon as he goes into the grave, according to his own way he describes it. So, so he doesn't say it is finished um, after he's raised from the dead. Although, although we know the the significance for our salvation of the resurrection, the, the vindication of everything he said. But what he said and when it was kind of done was when he when he died, when he went into the grave was where it was finished. And so that that's the decisive moment. Um, and so that parallel, again, I don't want to be careful about the parallel because, because Jesus doesn't spell all this out, but, but that parallel would make sense, that the fish actually is a vehicle for salvation, and Jonah knows that. It's also a kind of holding place for him. 
for three days and three nights. But it's the it's it's he knows once that happens, it's done. That he's that he's going to be rescued. That he's going to be saved. So that's interesting. That's a really interesting perspective. And I think and I think there's actually quite a lot of validity to it. I'll throw out one more thing, um, which I think probably combines with that comment, um, which is one of the oddities of Jonah's prayer is that almost none of it is original. Um, in other words, basically the entire prayer is lifted from two or three psalms. Now, now that's, that's helpful because the first thing that teaches us is it teaches us about prayer. And I want to just make this point. It's a little bit of an aside, but I think we have to address it. In the Bible, um, prayer, the, the model prayers are almost all this way. They're almost all driven directly and consumed almost entirely with things that God has already promised in his word. Now that is, I've talked about how we would pray and how Jonah prays. That This is a major gap between how we pray and how the model prayers in the Bible are set up. Because what happens in the model prayers of the Bible is they, they, they see their circumstances, whatever they may be, but then they reflect on those circumstances through everything God has said. And what you hear them doing is praying using all the language of what God had already promised. So in other words, you will find very few prayers or very few lines within prayers in the Bible that are not directly based on promises of God. Again, very different from our prayers. And I think it should be a corrective to our prayers. Because what we do is we say, well, if God's promised all these things, great. Maybe I know that, maybe I don't. But in, in my time of prayer, what I'm going to do is ask for all these things that, that, you know, that I want to see happen. Um, but in the Bible, it's really different. In the Bible, what they do is they say, here are my circumstances. What has God said about that? And then what I'm going to do, it's not redundant. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, pray the same things that God has already said. And, 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 and you can go through almost all, the, like I said, virtually every prayer in the scriptures that's a model prayer, virtually every line of every prayer in the scriptures does this. I'll give you one example that's because it's so clear. If you look at Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel 9, it's a great, it's a great setup. It's, it's mostly a prayer, that chapter but it's a great setup because what it says is that Daniel was, was sitting up in his room and he was reading through the prophecy of Jeremiah. So it, it, you know, it was just maybe a generation and a half old. He has the scroll of Jeremiah and he's reading it and he's in exile. And he reads in Jeremiah, just like we've been doing in, in church. What he reads and he says, oh, the exile is supposed to... And after 70 years, after 70 years, we're supposed to return to the land. And then it says, and this is all right there in the text of Daniel 9. I calculated the number of years since Jeremiah prophesied this. And I realized, basically, we're coming up on that 70 years. And, and so then he prays. 
And what he prays is striking because you and I at that point would go, oh, good, we're almost at 70 years, so I'll look forward to that. But what Daniel does is he says, we're almost at 70 years, so I'm going to pray that the Lord will do what he already promised to do in terms of the 70-year return. And, and three-quarters of the prayer is confession of sin. And then at the end, he says, Lord, this is what you've promised. Now do what you've promised. So he's taking his circumstances and applying the promises of God directly to his circumstances and asking God to do the very thing that God's already said he would do. Which, again, is contrary to our view of prayer because we think, no, I want to ask God to do the things that I want him to do, not the things he already said he would do. That's not most of biblical prayer. Okay, so there's a lesson here on prayer. This follows a model, and the model is what you do when you sit down to pray is you go, here's all the things that are going on in my life. What does God's Word say about them? I want to ask for what God's Word says about them. Now, it doesn't mean that you, you know, there aren't areas where you just don't know. Lord, I, I don't know what your will is here. I know that you say that you sustain us and, and, and you, you want us to be strengthened and to rejoice in all things. But And so please, please make that happen. But I, I, I'm asking if it's your will that you might see fit to glorify yourself by healing me in this situation. So, I mean, there are these little cases that the Bible does show. So I'm, I'm not making a 100% thing here. There are these little cases that the Bible says, cast your burdens on him, he cares for you. But most of the model prayers have someone saying, what's the Bible already promised? That's what I'm praying for. All right, so Jonah does that. How does he do it? He combines these psalms together. And how does he know that these psalms are applicable? Well, this is what's interesting. Um, because... Possibly already Jonah is aware that the fish has grabbed him and therefore he's going to be um, utilized by God in this way. But Jonah, Jonah understands, because if, if you go through each of the Psalms that Jonah picks up on, what, what Jonah does is he picks up on these Psalms that are also or these Psalms that are also used in the New Testament to talk about the Messiah and the way in which the Lord saves the Messiah from death and enables him to be both a judge to the nations and a light to the nations. So what Jonah seems to be doing, which is really remarkable at this moment, is he understands that the, the, the instructions that the Lord gave him, the command that the Lord gave him at the beginning, was... Um, was a command to go and be a light to the nations. And he realizes when he's in the belly of the fish, either just because he got swallowed, he realizes it, or because he's gotten to the end and he's sort of sees now what's happening, whatever the case, he now realizes that what God has called him to do is, is directly related to God's plan to be a light to the nations. And therefore... Because that's what God is doing, ultimately through the Messiah, but now in a sort of you know, lowercase sense through Jonah. Um, therefore, uh, what God is doing right now through me is he's saving me from death in order that I may carry out this, this work. Now, now what's, what's kind of striking about this, I don't want to jump ahead to chapter 4 too much, but 
the, the thing that you realize in chapter 4 is Jonah still didn't really want to do it. And he still kind of hated that God operated in this way. So Jonah's not really speaking out of great affection for the Ninevites at this point. or great. He's not really, um, you know, he, he, he's not, he's still not thrilled about the whole thing. But he knows that ultimately, because salvation is of the Lord, that what the Lord is doing here is the Lord is going to use him sort of against his will to, to carry out this meta plan that's outlined in the Psalms of, of being a light to the Gentiles and, and saving him out of death in order to be a light to the Gentiles. Which is again why I think this, this is such an important uh, messianic symbol that, that Jesus picks up on that Jesus picks up on later. Um, now he also he knows as well that everything that's happened is from the Lord. So look, for instance, in, in verses three and four, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me, and I said, "I'm driven away from your sight." Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Uh, temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. And at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land where bars closed, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So, so Jonah knows that the Lord's been in charge of all of this. And the fact that the Lord has preserved him up to this point through the, the waters is a kind of... Um, is a kind of uh, sign that what the Lord is doing is exactly the kind of thing he outlines in, 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 the, in the Psalter um, as his, his overall plan to be a light to the nations and to rescue his Messiah um, from death in order, in order that the Lord's, um, the Lord's steadfast love, his covenant love, that's the word used in verse 6, um, and his salvation, that's the word that's used in, in, in verse 9, I'm sorry, I said 6, 8, and then 9, that, that his covenant love and his salvation will go wherever he wants them to go. Now, um, that's a really significant thing for an Israelite at this time to, to recognize. Because, because what constituted the Israelites, what, what they would have said made them who they were was the covenant promises that God had made to them. And, and what Jonah is now saying is that anyone who turns away from idols can, if God so decides, because salvation is from the Lord, can be a partaker of that steadfast love or that covenant love. And, and by the way, let me just, I don't want to assume this. What I'm saying is in verse 8, you see that word, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That word steadfast love, translated steadfast love, equals a, a, a Hebrew word, hesed, which means covenant faithfulness. It's usually translated as something like 
loving kindness or or steadfast love in English. But it's a covenant word. Um, and, and because it's a covenant word, what, what, what he's doing is he's applying, um, he, he's saying that those even who are worshiping idols, the bad thing about worshiping idols is that they're forsaking steadfast love. And that's, a, that's the key verse, I think, not just because of what Jonah's is doing, but because of how he actually slightly alters it from the Psalms. So we haven't gone through every Psalm, but I want to show you this one. So in verse 8, um, he uses this word steadfast love, and he's, he's building on Psalm 31. Just turn to Psalm 31. I told you, he strings together a bunch of Psalms. He knew his Bible, and he used his Bible when he prayed. But here he changes the psalm slightly. Now the word order makes it hard to see how he takes it, um, how he changes it. But but he does. Um, what Psalm thirty one says, and by the way, I mean he, he, he's he's built on Psalm thirty one throughout this prayer. But here's what he here's what Psalm thirty one six says. This is the Psalm of David. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. And what Jonah says, this is the biggest change he makes to the Psalms. Most of the rest of them are just verbatim quotations. But what he says here is not, I hate those, although he probably does. But what he says is, those who pay regard to vain idols actually forsake their hope of this covenant love, of this hesed, covenant faithfulness. And so, but... But what, so, so Jonah knows exactly what's about to happen. Jonah knows that if he, um, if he proclaims this offer of salvation to the Ninevites who are worshiping vain idols, what they're getting now by worshiping vain idols is they're, they're not part of the covenant people. But if they do repent, then they are then they're participants in God's covenant love. And, and the reality is, what we learn in chapter 4 is, Jonah actually doesn't want that to happen. But he knows that's what God is doing. But it's amazing, because sometimes you think in the Old Testament, um, sometimes uh, it's portrayed that in the Old Testament, God isn't working at all with the Gentiles. But Jonah, is a, Jonah uses very specific, theologically loaded language to say, no, 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 God is at work. And God's always making him his covenant available, even to those who are currently worshiping idols. Because, what he says at the end is, salvation belongs to the Lord. And what do we know about the Lord from chapter 1? That he's the, the God of heaven and earth. He's the creator of heaven and earth. So he's the creator of heaven and earth. That means he owns it all. And his covenant then isn't just with one people it's available even to those who are in the midst of idolatry. And we saw it worked out in chapter 1, and now Jonah says it um, in his one alteration of the Psalms that he's quoting from. So there's a tremendous amount going on here in terms of uh, redemptive history. I guess we're, are we, you guys have to go for choir, don't you? Let me, let me pray. I'm done. I went over time. Lord, thank you for the time that you've given us. We, uh, we, we pray that you would take our uh, feeble efforts and use them to your glory that we might see things differently 
and that we might pray differently and read your word differently and even look at the nations differently. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.